That's a cheeky question, and, and you're going to hold me to that, aren't of you? Of course, what do you think? <laughs> Why do you think we're recording this? Absolutely. This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Uh, it's Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast, and I'm here with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. Uh, we're both in our BCBT summer school here in Barcelona 2015. And I'm here with, uh, with Narander uh, Ramnani, who was giving us actually a very different kind of view on cerebellum because the standard view on cerebellum is really like, well, this is sort of this, this little appendix that hangs off your, your brainstem and that might be involved in some form of motor control. But when things really get interesting, cognition, decision-making, Forget it. We go look at at cortical areas, mainly prefrontal cortex, and you sort of turn that whole perspective upside down. So, how did you come to that perspective? Well, that's an interesting uh, question. So, this goes back again to um, everything being you know, the foundation for my views are really the anatomy of the system. And so, one of the things that I I became very curious about was. Um, the the looped architecture of the corticocerebellar system and this idea that our knowledge of what the cerebellum is talking to is incomplete. Um, and then over the years, the gap started to become filled and some very nice work came out from Peter Strick's lab and from uh, the work that uh, Schmarman and Pandya did uh, shortly, shortly before that. Um, and this work really highlighted the idea that the cerebellum isn't simply talking to the motor cortex. There are many other parts of the cerebellum that are communicating with um, really quite a diverse range of, of different uh, uh, areas of the neocortex, such as the prefrontal cortex, um, and, and in fact many different parts of the frontal lobe. Um, and also the parietal cortex. So there's this diverse range of inputs. So the question is, if it's just a motor structure, what on earth is it doing just doing motor control? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really that's really where it all kicked off from. Right. You, you began also by talking about what is now quite a classical view of cerebellum, sort of the Mar Albus theory. Could you just summarize for us that for us again? And also... Do you think that that's still a useful framework to think about cerebellum? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, it's a framework that hasn't changed very much, actually. I mean, people have tinkered around the edges with it, but the fundamental message of of what Mar and Albus were talking about is still very much there. Um, and the perspective that they offer is, the theoretical perspective that they offer is this idea that Purkinje cells are the computational unit, the principal computational unit, and that this is a system that's capable of plasticity for supporting learning, um, and that learning is achieved by adjusting the inputs into Purkinje cells, um, and these inputs are um, uh, typically parallel fibers and those changes occur under the guidance of a teaching-related error signal uh, from the inferior olive. Now, having said that, there are new perspectives emerging. Um, They also talk about adjusting uh, 
the uh, uh, the synapses between cerebellar units and their inputs. Uh, and I think it's recognized now that you know, this is not the only source of plasticity in the cerebellum, but you also have plasticity um, involving a lot of other cell types in the cerebellar cortex. But they, uh, one of the basic messages out of that is that there's a sort of microcircuit yeah. uh, and that it's repeated across the cerebellum. Do we still hold with that? There's very little data to argue against that view. And um, so the, the, micro, the, the microcircuit or the microcomplex idea is uh, still something that's very much in play. Um, and the anatomy and physiology work bears that out, really, particularly in relation to the, you know, the work that's been done using eye movements or using um, classical eye blink conditioning where people have identified very specific microsomes that might contain the Purkinje cells that house that plasticity. So, and, and, but, uh, but as you were saying, sort of classically, people have thought this microcircuit is doing something in the motor domain. Yeah. But you yeah. now want to generalize it. Absolutely. So the, the architecture of the cerebellum is considered to be quite uniform. It's really very, very different from the architecture that you find in the cerebral cortex, where cytoarchitecture is quite diverse. So you, you know, um, people will have come across the concept of Brodmann areas in the cerebral cortex, where the uh, area four has a different profile of cells from um, its neighbors in area six or, or wherever. Uh, the idea about the cerebellar cortex is that it's much, much more uniform than that. So the computations that are going on in any given location will be the same um, in, in one location as in any other. So, so that idea still holds up, although people are starting to find some interesting biochemical differences um, that suggest that there may be some interesting um, but subtle differences between these uh, between these areas. So, one of them, for example, is the um, the, the idea of um, there's there's this substance called aldolase C or zebrin that's differentially expressed in different parts of the cerebellar cortex. And one of the interesting things about zebrin is that if you stain the cerebellum for zebrin, you get a stripy parasagittal organization. That in itself tells you something about the um, parasagittal functional organization of the cerebellum, but um, it also suggests that maybe there are some subtle differences in the way that these these um, adjacent zones compute as right. well. Mm -hmm. And uh, how many zones do we think we have? You know, if, say in the primate. Oh, uh, crikey! It's that's a difficult right. uh, question to answer because I think as you go out more laterally, they become more and more refined. And the other thing, of course, is there are slightly different ways of, of measuring it. of of characterizing a zone. I mean. Zebrin is one way, um, but there are there are many many because I think subzones. I think the the system I know better, the basal ganglia, has similar notion of a microcircuit which is repeated across. Yeah. But when you drill down and ask people to define the microcircuits, it all gets very hazy. Yeah. And you end up well. Some people say there's larger domains, of which there might be a handful, and yeah. some people will say well there's very small micro domains. 
I mean, so is is there still a controversy in the cerebellum about the granularity of the domain? I think there probably is. I mean, there, there, there's still this slightly old-fashioned controversy that continues to rumble on about whether you have patchy somatotopy that's determined by the um, parallel fiber inputs or whether there's this other organization that's determined by, you know, Zebrin. But the other interesting thing I should say about Zebrin is that it seems to correspond very closely with um, the one of the important input systems from, um, from the inferior olive. So climbing fibers project to the cerebellar cortex almost on a one-to-one -one basis. So one climbing fiber will completely dominate the um, the physiology of any given Purkinje cell. And it seems as though the parasagittal organization that we find with zebrin seems to correspond with the parasagittal organization as determined by the projections from the inferior olive. So there's an interesting... Um, there, there's an interesting story there. So the microcircuit is really defined by the climbing fiber. And, uh, arguably, arguably that's that's yeah. what that's what's been claimed by by some authors. Yes, absolutely. So, that, um, so, so you also made the claim that there's sort of this co-evolution of cerebellum and cortex, mm. and that in that sense the cerebellum performs like a universal transformation from its inputs that it receives over the pons to its outputs mm. that go out over the deep cerebellar nuclei. But also, as Marin Albus tells us, this is all dependent, how, how this output is shaped, is all dependent on the error signal you get from your inferior olive. So, now in the case of classic conditioning, it's fairly easy to understand where that error signal comes from, because it's linked into the periphery that just says, okay, you just got shocked on your orbit, or you got an air puff on your cornea. But if we now say, well, a huge chunk of cerebellum is actually bidirectionally interfaced to prefrontal, What's the error signal in that case? Well, that's an, another really fascinating question. I think one of the problems that we're confronted with is that there's so little data, uh, so little physiological data that can answer that question. And it kind of highlights how much work there is left to do. Um, but some of those questions could be answered in terms of the anatomy. We know, for example, that uh, there are parts of the dopamine system that encode prediction error. We also know about the, the fact that elements of the dopamine system are sending their outputs to the cerebellum. And so there's, there's a route there for this information to reach it. So, for example, the VTA not only sends its error signals off to you know, quite large areas of the prefrontal cortex, but interestingly, there are collaterals that branch off from those projections that end up forming connections with Purkinje cells, and these are dopamine connections. Um, so there's, it's as if it's as if the cerebellum is receiving a copy of the error signals that are reaching the neocortex. Okay, so you're saying maybe for the interaction with frontal areas. If your olive becomes less important to convey error, and it will be more derived from a VTA-dependent dopamine signal, which might signal something like a reward prediction error, Does that would be the idea. Well, that, that's one. That's one thing that uh, one could claim. I, I think we shouldn't underplay the importance of the olive. There is recent data that has demonstrated um, 
there are there are there are in rats prefrontal inputs to parts of the olive that then project on to areas like Cruz one and Cruz two that receive um, that receive input from the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. uh, from the other system. So there's there's a lot of different anatomical routes through which that could happen. And one of these areas in the prefrontal is the anterior cingulate. And we know that the anterior cingulate does play a major role in um, the monitoring of errors that are cognitive in origin, you know, errors in your own cognitive processing, for example. And those areas do seem to send in rats an output to the olive, and, and then the olive then sends those projections back to... For you, which area would that happen? Would that then play out in rat? What, what areas are we talking about? Uh, which which neocortical areas? So the the anterior cingulate mm-hmm. cortex. Um, I I don't remember off the top of my head which particular anterior ACC areas, mm-hmm. but um, Tom Rickrock has okay. has basically characterized mm-hmm. that system. And it would then just run over the thalamus to the inferior olive, or this is a collateral. No, from this would some this would go this would go directly from the neocortex to the olive, and. There on, from there on into cerebellum. There okay. are direct inputs. And these are um, topologically uh, mapped. That means these anterior cingulate projections that end up in the inferior olive target climbing fibers that, yes. that target regions in the cerebellum that are again recurrently coupled to that same bit of neocortex. That's right, because the study was conducted using transsynaptic traces. Mm-hmm. And uh, because these these traces have the ability to jump synapses. Mm-hmm. It's possible to do that point-to-point connectivity. Right. So that's cool, right? Because it means you're, you're heuristic to say, okay, in case we don't understand, let's follow the anatomy. Yeah. It's then again paying off. That at least the idea of having the fear all of as your, as your error signal generator yes. is, is then still intact also for these Absolutely. And I, I think the other thing it does is to is to open up the um, the possibility of, of, of physiological studies to, to try and investigate these circuits mm-hmm. at a functional level. Right. But so, now, sorry, to, to, to finish up the inferior olive, okay. yeah, I just want to say that um, the other thing, which, however, I felt I didn't see back in your, in your diagram in a too prominent role, is a negative feedback between the deep nucleus and the inferior olive. I mean, it might sound like a detail, but if it, it turns out that these Purkinje cells are actually actively controlling the errors that, that they receive over the inferior olive. So um, is that kind of error feedback control that occurs within the cerebellum for you computationally less relevant at this stage or just something that you've no, ignored I, for other reasons? Uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's, an extremely important, uh, it's an extremely important facet of the circuit. And in fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was an inhibitory output coming out in those diagrams that I showed uh, projecting back to the olive. And one of the, one of the things that this seems to be involved in is the damping down of, um, of error-related activity. So, for example, in classical eye blink conditioning, um, you know, you'll, be, you'll be aware perhaps more than I would that uh, um, this pathway is important for for decreasing in some ways the salience of the unconditioned stimulus. Um, so, uh, you know, Jerry Hessler's work has, has shown uh, that, that the, and Chris Yeo's work has also shown that the 
amplitude of the US is decreased um, in the presence of a conditioned response. So if there's a copy, there's an inference copy, if you like, of the CR that leaves the cerebellum and on its way it basically goes down back to the olive and reduces the salience of the US. And there are some interesting parallels that one could apply that to in the cognitive domain. Um, if there's a system like the cerebellum that's specialized for feed-forward behavior that doesn't really benefit from feedback and indeed could be impaired by any sort of ongoing feedback if it causes an interruption to, to the processing. You do want a system that dampens down the effects of any uh, um, ongoing um, uh, ongoing error feedback coming into the system. So I wanted to clarify about your diagram. So you have the inferior olive feeding back to three areas of cerebellum, and then you have VTA feeding into another area. Is that right? Is that yeah. So um, the is, is VTA, is, is dopamine signaling something similar then to what the inferior olive is signaling in these other areas? Well, the, the diagram that, that you're talking about is, is simplified and there are a right. few speculative things about it. But um, in essence, in essence, there will be, there'll be some things that are similar. Right. And, but there'll, be, there'll probably be some things that are different too. Um, so, uh, in answer to your question, so what what would be similar? Um, one of the things one of the things that it could that it could signal are the higher level cognitive errors that we spoke about earlier. Um, the the what could be different? Um, again, you know, this is speculative because nobody's ever sat down and recorded from both of them to see how they differ. Um, but the dopamine system signals reward-related error, and so that's why you know I've included it in that uh, in that pathway in, in that diagram. Yeah, I mean, so you have these overall domains of cortex, which are, I, I guess they're defined in part by where they get their input from in cortex. Yeah, but then also they're defined in part by where they get their feedback from. Yeah. Yes, although I'm not ruling out the possibility that the olive could also be feeding into into these high, the high level uh, circuits that I was right. that I oh, mentioned. Okay. I'm not ruling that out. Um, it's just that um, we need to see some sort of concrete evidence for their existence before before we could do that. Sure. So then, um, but now, so you present us with. A really fascinating diagram, which I liked a lot, yeah, and there's a lot to discuss about it. Um, but, of course, there's also data behind it. And I think what's really uh, really impressive is that you've been able, actually, to, to replicate a lot of the, the phenomena that we know about cerebellar learning in humans. So, so could you, to what extent is, let's say, at least in your mind, is the response of the human cerebellum actually identical or similar to what you might expect in a in a rodent or or a macaque uh, under classical conditioning conditions or VOR, so yeah. So so one of the one of the things that I alluded to in my talk was this idea 
of a conditioned stimulus being processed similarly, uh, regardless of whether it's involved in a, in the process of classical conditioning or whether it's involved in the process of instrumental learning. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, the things that I found very interesting was, was to basically draw from the classical conditioning literature because things are so very well known in that area. And one of the things that I, I, uh, uh, I mentioned was the idea that when you record from the eye-blink microzones in the cerebellar cortex, you find a decrease in the activity of the Purkinje cell in response to a conditioned stimulus during classical conditioning. So the issue is that if there is such a thing as a universal cerebellar transform, where a similar form of information processing is applied to, let's say, inputs going into a part of the cerebellar cortex that's receiving from prefrontal cortex, um, if, if you take a higher level form of learning, for example, like, like instrumental learning of rules, uh, the question would be, do you see something similar? Do you see a decrease in the activity of the um, of, of, of a patch of cerebellar cortex um, when a CS is presented at the same time? And the work that I mentioned seems to bear this out. There seems to be a decrease in activity. Mm-hmm. Which is important, right? Because on the one hand, you replicate what we would expect from physiology, which is we, we obtain a pause in precarious cell firing would mean less uh, oxygen consumption and reduced blood flow. But it also means the pause is not dependent on another let's say, population of interneurons that now inhibits the Purkinje cells because then your blood flow pattern might not have changed so much. Would That's you agree with that? Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things we have to be very careful about when we interpret imaging is, um, you know, what does an increase mean? You know, because this could mean an increase in inhibitory activity which could be manifest in a different way if you're using electrophysiology. Uh, one of the things that was most, you know, very interesting about the work that I've just mentioned uh, that uses electrophysiology is the use of gabazine. And so gabazine inhibits the action of neurotransmitter, inhibitory neurotransmitter, uh, inhibitory inputs onto Purkinje cells. Um, But the CS-related decrease that you observe is still there despite the fact that the gabazine... Has, has acted on the system. And what that suggests is that the input um, that's driving this inhibition are probably the excitatory inputs coming in via parallel fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the value, the value of understanding that for imaging is that if you have a decrease in activity during imaging, it's probably the case that there are, you know, there's a similar explanation involved that doesn't involve, you know, the, the ramping up of activity by increased metabolic demand, mm-hmm. for example, from, from right. inhibitory neurons. Yes. Is there a sort of a, uh, subtleties about how you interpret fMRI data with cerebellum? Because uh, when you have learning, you actually have decreased activity. Is that right, generally? So you... I mean, as, as you as you see learning proceed, you don't necessarily expect once the system is tuned up to see a lot I, of activity I, there. I think sometimes it's it's very difficult. 
yeah. to interpret this sort of data. We know what we can say is that it's consistent with the electrophysiology. Uh, but there are studies that show learning-related increases in the cerebellum too. And of course, we will never know why because we don't know what cell types are generating that information. We don't know um, what... We basically don't know what, what is driving that activity. So, for example, in a study of learning where you see an increase, uh, that could be that you're you're ramping up activity in the cerebellum for other reasons. It, it may not be that you see this 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 um, sort of Mar and Albus type change that I spoke of before, or this Albus type decrease that that we looked that that we were that we were comparing with. Um, it's possible that you're getting inputs in that are, are ramping up the signal from other areas of cortex for other reasons. Um, Learning-related activity is not always going to be manifested as a decrease in the cerebellum. So what, what's the strategy then when you have this? Oh, it's a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> um, imaging is a, is, is, is a great tool to use for many reasons. I mean, not least because you can image the entire brain in one go and plus the fact um, uh, that, you know, you could look at anatomically very specific areas and so on. Um, there, there are lots of benefits to imaging, you know, including the fact that you could, you could do it in humans, you can examine tasks in humans that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do in animals. But the, the key thing to remember is that fMRI is otherwise a very imperfect tool. Every tool has its drawbacks. And with fMRI, you're not going to be able to tease apart things like which cell type is contributing to my signal. Um, and the indirect nature of it, the fact that you're depending on a secondary measure of electrical activity rather than the electrical activity itself. Um, so there are lots of things that get in the way of the interpretation, but it's still an excellent tool to use, I think. Right. But now, so... Um you, the paradigm you've used on humans, which is really interesting, uh, sort of moves away a bit from the tra traditional division we have between operant learning going back to Thorndike and, and what's called classical conditioning going back to Pavlov, where in, in the first case uh, we are learning about the, the effect of our own actions on the world, and in the second case the world ex ex exposes itself to us, and we have to pick up whatever correlations are in that data. So you, you have tried to find a paradigm where you really merge instrumental aspects of, of learning with classical aspects of learning. How do you exactly balance that? How do you make sure that you can really still call it instrumental? Well, we can call it instrumental because of the nature of the contingencies in the trial design. So with instrumental learning, well, let me start with classical conditioning, where you know, classical conditioning, you have a condition stimulus, and uh, that will always be followed, regardless of what the subject does, by an unconditioned stimulus, which will cause an unconditioned response. And so there's no contingency between the way that the subject behaves and the outcome. The outcome will always be delivered. Um, so that's that's fine. You know, that's that's the classical um, that that's the classical scenario. The the instrumental scenario, of course, is very different. 
we make sure that the outcomes are dependent on the subject's behavior. So there's a very clear contingency there. So the trial design really takes care of, of that, I think. But now, um, in the operant case, you would also believe that, the, let's say, it's something like a there's a larger time interval we're talking about, and also the feedback the subject gets is, has a different kind of quality. So in this case, your human subject, I guess, is not being shocked anywhere. So we're not talking about an aversive stimulus that's being applied. So do you think that is a, a qualitatively change for the cerebellar learning system, or actually it turns out to be still operating in an identical way, in your mind at least? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think that the best way to answer that is, is just to make clear that the inputs that come into the cerebellum um, come in through, you know, so it's a basically a, in, in, the, in the trials that I'm using, in, the, in, the, in the, the methods that I'm using, I use a visual feedback. There are reports, lots of reports showing that the cerebellum has access to that information, at least as a, at a sensory level. Um, so, so whether, you know, and, you know, in classical learning theory will tell you that, um, the, the more intense a stimulus, the faster you learn and that sort of thing. Those same kinds of manipulations can be applied to instrumental learning. Um, and so you can you can have a partial reinforcement schedule and so on. The kinds of signal that we see coming from the cerebellum seem to mimic the um, the amplitude. Well, the the rate of learning, I would say, mm -hmm. and so they all seem to follow these these sort of Rascola Wagner type rules mm -hmm. in that sense. But now the in this. When the task becomes instrumental, we also have to start to think about how do we represent the rule that's hidden in this task, right? And how do we then pick up the relationship between that rule and my, my own actions? So in your mind, it is that rule representation that will be the frontal uh, neocortical contribution and the action generation would then be the cerebellar contribution. That's how you think about it? Yeah. So So the... Not, not really. I mean, I, I tend to think. I tend to think if so. What you're suggesting is that the rule representation is uh, is neocortical, mm -hmm. and that the action-related representation mm -hmm. is is coming from the cerebellum. I I don't follow that path at all because if you again look at the wiring diagram, it doesn't support it. Um, so I find it surprising because I thought we just we just had agreed that all the wires are there to 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 link these two systems together. Uh, they are, but if you, if you look carefully, if you look carefully at the system, the cerebellar modules are all separate from each other. They don't talk to each other. The only way, the only scope for us for the, uh, the cerebellar signal to influence the neocortical system. Or, or rather, the, the only way in which these modules can communicate with each other is through their links via the neocortical areas that do wire up to each other. So you've got prefrontal, premotor, primary motor cortex um, all talking to each other mm -hmm. a lot. Um, 
the cerebellar modules that are independently wired up to these areas are operating independently of each other. There is no wiring within the cerebellum that can allow them to talk to each other. So you're saying they have to operate through the neocortex? Uh, yeah, basically that's right. Yeah. But in theory, they could also, let's say, via brainstem motor nuclei like the red nucleus, the pedunculopontine nucleus, you might loop back to the pons and then generate as an efference copy an input to a cerebellar, a next cerebellar circuit and loop it straight through the cerebellum, would it be anatomically defendable? Do run that one past me again, I missed that. So an alternative mm. is that I, go, I send my motor command from the deep nucleus of the cerebellum down to the red nucleus or, and or to any other brainstem motor nucleus, pedunculopontine nucleus, from which I get an efference copy back into my pontine nucleus, yeah. input station to the cerebellum, mm. and now I can loop it over a next cerebellar circuit. So I think... In theory, anatomically, you could devise a scheme that they can loop multiple cerebellar circuits without ever talking to the neocortex. Would you, would you buy that? Uh, I would probably find that... Um, I think if the, if the pathways existed, then I would... You know, I think that that may be supportable, but what is the evidence uh, that, those, those, that the anatomy exists that could support those... Uh, that could support mm -hmm. that. Uh, well, red um, nucleus for sure projects back to inferior olive, for instance. Yes, right? it does. But but I think I think the the olive is is a very modular structure, mm -hmm. and so the red nucleus is not going to project to every part of the olive. Um, similarly, does the red nucleus? You know, to what extent do different elements of the red nucleus communicate with? you know, eventually with, with areas like mm -hmm. prefrontal and premotor cortex. Um, well, I can, I can play it another way to, to, to see if I, I, since you like the wires, I could also say, okay, we've got an efference copy, execute the motion, comes back to somatosensory cortex, and from there straight into your pons. Right? So still, I'm, 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 I would be able to loop multiple cerebellar circuits without ever talking to my motor cortex. Mm. I think the cerebellum is a very, very modular structure, not just intrinsically, but also the way that it is wired up with lots of other areas. Um, I think all of the evidence to date suggests that these loops don't communicate with each mm -hmm. other. And that's a, it's a generalization in some ways, but I think you know, you, we, have to, we have to go with that mm -hmm. because that's the evidence that we have available. But is it important to your model at least how you think about the circuit functionally, hmm. is this an important axiom of your of your model? Like it, that if it would be violated, the whole model collapses. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, there's no computational instantiation of my model yet, um, so there hasn't been an opportunity to sit down mm. and write this into a piece of software and test it. It makes it much easier um, to speculate about it. That's a yes, good thing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you, your model sort of rec or claims the system one, system two distinction. Yeah. And uh, the system one, uh, which is where you say the cerebellum has the lead role, is a sort of habit learning system. But what you described about the anatomy 
would seem to suggest that the the habits have to be enacted via the cortex, even if they're learned in the cerebellum. Yeah, I, because I think the apparatus for delivering um, the habit-based behaviour is is housed in the neocortex. It's not housed. Well, in it, the it could also be housed in the brainstem. You know, elsewhere, there's a lot of machinery there yeah, for yeah. controlling the motor system, which where you would not need motor cortical input. That's right. And you could imagine that, you know, with the cerebellum, you could wire up all sorts of interesting responses in the brainstem without having to bother with motor cortex um yeah i think that's that's a possibility but um the neocortical architecture um that supports very complex behaviors uh is better placed i think to execute those kinds of behaviors than the you know the circuits in the brainstem so so in that case system one would be about wiring up circuits in motor cortex to to perform the habit behaviors so is it more of a i'm still not, I'm not sure how this can work if the loops don't interact i guess you've got your loops in motor cortex but what's my prefrontal cortex loop how's that able to help me learn a, a motor habit or am i learning some other no kind you're, of you're learning these 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 modules are learning in independently so, so what kind of what's habit learning in the context of okay. prefrontal cortex? Okay, so what habit learning in the context of prefrontal cortex is, for example, the execution of uh, a rule, um, right. the, the execution of, for example, the kind of experiments that I talked about earlier, where you're arbitrarily pairing, um, you're pairing uh, a stimulus and and a response in a completely arbitrary manner. Now. You can think of that as having motor control demands. You can think of that as having sensory demands, but you can also think of that as having cognitive demands. It's the cognitive element of of that that is being um, uh, basically being run by by the the prefrontal cerebellar loop. Yeah, but. To me, this doesn't make any sense, really. I'm, a, I'm okay. sorry. I'm sorry to say, but look, the point is so. Let's start with Schiffer and Schneider, right? So we, we talk about controlled versus automatic processing, yeah. And it also means the controlled, deliberate system figures out the rules. It figures out how to map sensory states to action states, given goals. With that, you train your habits that now can be executed by your automatic system. And why do you want to do this? Because you want to be fast. You want to optimize your response latency. Right? Yeah. Or you want to free up resource in frontal cortex. Or, yes, absolutely. Well, I would, I would think um, a real fitness requirement is latency more than, than okay. working memory uh, space. But we can debate that, okay? Mm. So here I am. Now I have my automatic process. What's, what, what am I optimizing? Time. Okay, latency. So now, also in the perspective of Kahneman, you would have system one, system two. System two is the slow system. It's a controlled system, deliberate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then system one is a fast automatic system. Great, okay. But now you're proposing that this fast system that puts in this huge amount of metabolic resource into getting fast, and the Purkinje cells and the cerebellar circuit is fast, right? And it really controls latency very precisely by disinhibiting the deep nuclear cells. So yeah, you, you rely on the rebound, which is controlled in latency, mm. to trigger an output. But that's not what you're building on. You say, no, no, 
these guys are really very, maybe very precise. But again, that's that goes back to motor cortex, which sits there, piece of cortex, it's integrating, it's sloppy, it's jittery, whatever. And then that piece of cortex is going to issue this final motor command that cruises down my, my uh, cortical spinal tract to, to control the skeletal muscle uh, system. But I'm adding, I'm adding latency now. Mm, mm. Why, why, why would I do that? Because you have to parcelate up different elements of the task. So, I mean, what you're suggesting, what you're suggesting is that somehow this very high-level thing that you've learned finds its way into the motor system without going through the motor cortex. Um, but there's no route. I mean, how would it do it? I mean, if you think about the, the connections of Cruise 1 and Cruise 2, which are the parts of the cerebellum that are supposed to be learning these things, they have no output to the motor system. So there is no other route. Mm -hmm. But maybe they're doing something else than controlling action. Maybe they're part of the, of the slow system and it helps the slow system to figure out, let's say, interval information, timing between events. And it is not involved at all in generating actions. For that, you train up other parts of the cerebellum. Yes. Well, that's basically what I'm what I'm suggesting. So you have you have modular uh, modular parts of the mm -hmm. cerebellum. So you have some parts that are specialized for dealing with prefrontal problems. Some parts dealing with the primary motor cortex, um, and that the the. the it's basically speeding up elements of the information processing that would otherwise go on in each of these neocortical mm -hmm. areas. Um, but you need the neocortical areas to actually deliver the mm -hmm. response. There is no output from Cruise 1 and Cruise 2 that can access this corticospinal tract, mm -hmm. except through going back to places like prefrontal cortex and then you know, sending the signal down through premotor cortex mm -hmm. and primary motor cortex. You also exclude that there's any kind of divergence in, let's say, the deep cerebellar nuclei uh, that might allow them to indirectly target uh, brainstem motor nuclei. Well, um, that's an interesting question. So the perspective that Peter Strick has offered us is that these are highly modular systems. Now, the missing information in all of this anatomical work that we've talked about before is the absence of any point-to-point -point connectivity that's been shown. So it's never been shown, for example, that um, there's a particular neuron in the primary motor cortex that sends its outputs to specific Purkinje cells, and that those specific Purkinje cells send outputs back to thalamus and back to that particular neuron in the primary motor cortex. So that point-to-point -point connectivity has been missing um, from the at, literature. At the single cell level. At the single cell level. But it, it does reach that volume of cells. Yeah, so, so the, the broad areas are, you know, um, so it's been shown, for example, that if you put anterograde and retrograde tracer into M1, you'll end up with um, label in the same kinds of the same cerebellar lobules. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that suggests quite broadly, but it suggests that there are these independent loops and that they don't communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. However, I think to 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 be conclusive about it and to 
be sensible about developing computational models, you have to demonstrate that this point-to-point -point connectivity exists. Well, I'm not sure if that's a fair constraint, really, because certainly... So what, what is the shortest distance at which people have found these uh, recurrent projections to terminate? I mean, we're talking about, what, hundreds of microns, or this, is, this will be the scale, right? So, so as soon as you hit cortex, you have a highly excitable substrate which, which dense local coupling with lateral coupling. So as long as you target, let's say, an area that is, let's, let's say, 100 micron mm, away, mm. You, you, you can be quite sure that sure. activity will percolate down to that neuron. Well, that's right, except that the comments we were, the things that we were talking about earlier were about ways in which inputs from prefrontal cortex can start to influence... Mm -hmm. Um, it, the motor output, the motor output, right. and so on. These are in different lobules. Altogether. Sure, but but uh, but I wasn't. Indeed, we we weren't finished with that, and I have a solution. Because may, maybe the thing to consider is that even though there's a universal cerebellum transformation, mm. the cerebellar areas that are interfaced to prefrontal don't don't care about action generation in terms of the motor plant itself, mm. but they assist prefrontal areas to figure out, let's say, interval information mm. about task re relevant or, de or decision variables. Mm -hmm. Because that's the unique contribution they can give you. They can tell you something about interval timing. Right. And this is much necessary by acquiring the habit as this for executing the habit. So how about that? Uh, that's that's plausible, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, not all is lost for my for my canoe right now. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a compromise to me. It sounds like oh, really? I'm already, okay, <laughs> watering, watering it down. Now. Okay. So okay, good. So, um, so, so now okay. So we have different interpretations of how, let's say, uh, the dense interaction of of cerebellum with prefrontal. Would you say? I mean, how big a, of the, how much of the hardware, the cerebellar hardware, is committed to interacting with these premotor areas? You would say the premotor areas. Well, or prefrontal, just decision making areas in right. the brain. Let's okay. say. Okay. Um, it, estimates have, have, have varied, but, but a very, very significant chunk of it. I mean, I think Peter Strick, in one of his papers, if memory serves me correctly, he said that there was something like 40% of the territory of the cerebellum in primates was accounted for by the motor system. Um, then including... The decision-making parts of what we now call motor system. No, no. Ah, so, so, sorry. What, okay. so, so the issue is, what is the rest of it doing? Yeah. Okay. And in theory, um, you know, very significant chunks of it are going to be devoted to it. You know, communication with prefrontal cortex, and it, it sort of makes sense that that's the case because prefrontal cortex is in the human brain has expanded enormously during the course of human evolution. Um, and if you take on board the fact that connected systems tend to evolve together because of the selection pressures being applied on systems as a whole, then yes, that sort of makes sense. It makes sense. But I find it such a strange heuristic because I might also imagine I'm an engineer, right? Mm -hmm. We're the god engineer, we're building brains, we have these modules. As you say, right? Mm -hmm. It has a very modular structure, the cerebellum. So I think also Tony mentioned that in the talk, you could imagine I engineer some animal 
who has to do has uh, lots of really fast movements in a complicated dynamical world. I give it a huge cerebellum, and mm. it, it doesn't need to solve any problems. Uh, it doesn't solve crossword puzzles, and you know, Wisconsin card sorting, sorting is also not available in the jungle. Mm. So mm. it just reduces its neocortex. So why do these things, by necessity, have to coevolve? Well. By necessity, I mean that's what you seem to say. No, I, I'm suggesting I'm suggesting that if if selection pressures apply to systems that operate functionally as a unit, then you're going to find an expansion on the whole. You know, you're going to find an expansion of the parts of the cerebellum that are communicating with the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. and that's indeed what we found. And this expansion of the Purkinje cell level, the granule cell, oh, that, all the, of them together? Those are empirical questions. We have, we, we have no idea. But you, um, one thing you did say was that there's a kind of uh, a dorsal ventral, I think, distinction in, in the amount that PFC talks to cerebellum. So there's much more connectivity with the dorsal area. Well, there's a, there's a dorsal ventral split in the dentate. So right. the, the, the dentate nucleus... Is is you can you can split it up in terms of the dorsal part, which is wired up with the motor system, and the ventral part, which is wired up with the prefrontal system. Right. And um, it's been shown that previous studies have shown when you compare across primates that there has been a selective expansion of the ventral part of the dentate nucleus. Um, and we're now okay. starting to explore those sorts of issues. In I think um, I was referring to, so uh, elsewhere in your talk, you were saying that there were parts of prefrontal cortex which oh, have yeah. a strong projection, other parts uh, which have a weak yes, projection. Yes, exactly, yes. So one of the interesting things that was found by Jeremy Schmarman and Deepak Pandya was that the dorsal parts of prefrontal cortex, so areas that are uh, dorsal to sulcus principalis, have a greater tendency to project to cerebellum than ventral parts. Right. And so you could speculate about why that might be, and, you know, that might tell us something about um, the kinds of information that the cerebellum wants to process, as it were. Mm. Um, but now the other... So... so, so uh, Let's say, okay, let's say we agree, okay? So they it all evolved together. And Very then, then we can talk about basal ganglia hippocampus and spiritualically see if they also co-evolved the same way yes. and they might have done that or not, okay? Yeah. But so now we have a controlled system which definitely will depend on, on neocortex, frontal areas, and basal ganglia. I don't know, maybe you want to leave that out, I don't know. But now I have to compile my habit into my cerebral circuit, right? So, so how do I first segment a habit? Mm. And then secondly, how, how do I get those segments into my cerebellum mm. that I can call them up on future occasions? That's a really interesting question and a tough one to answer. We need answers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So the issue of how do you segment a habit, I think that's, that's a tough one. Um, I think all you can say is that if there are if there are associations being formed, if there are if there are CSs being processed in areas of the prefrontal cortex, then there'll be a spike train corresponding to that going down to the cerebellum uh, via the pons. Um, 
how you can sort of break that very high-level uh, representation down and, and, and talk about it in terms of what will the spike train look like and how, how will that be represented in, uh, uh, in terms of Purkinje cell activity or whatever. I think, I think it's, it's not possible to answer that. Mm-hmm. It's a tough one. Do you think it will exploit the segmentation? Do you think it will exploit already the structuring of action primitives or behavioral primitives at the brainstem level? Because as a cerebellum, if you take the eye blink conditioning analog, I am talking to my red nucleus. Mm. I'm triggering. I'm triggering discrete behavioral primitives. I don't think so. Okay. And the reason for that is, let's think, for example, about the kinds of information that gets processed in the hierarchically organized neocortical system. So if you take, for example, cells in the prefrontal cortex and you try to figure out what they're most interested in, uh, the work of Earl Miller shows that they're interested in rules. They're not interested in the fundamentals of motor control. You won't find motor unit activity being represented in the cells of the prefrontal. Um, equally, if you if you look at cells in the motor cortex, you won't find them being interested and being and having their response properties tuned to particular rules as you would find in the cells of prefrontal cortex. Um, so I don't think that you're going to be... I don't think it's a useful exercise, really, to try and look in places like the brainstem for things that are, you know, rule-related, as it were. But still, for, if we think about a simple rule, which is like um, later on you, you might want to escape from the studio and go to the lounge, something like this, right? And if we do sufficient or enough interviews with you, then you would be having a, this habit of running to the lounge and, and breaking all the furniture, okay? <laughs> so that's a habit now. But this habit will have primitive elements, which might also be getting up out of your chair, yeah. controlling posture, going to the door, you know, moving through a door. So they're very simple elements in the end that get stringed together. So what is, what is special about the habit is... It's macroscopic structure that even brings you from here to the lounge where you smash up all the furniture. Mm. So, so the point is that the, with these primitive elements, we can easily account for at the brainstem level. No, like just to get up, maintain your posture, locomote. Can you? I'm not so sure. Okay. So c- give me an example. I, I mean, the, the kinds of representations that you have mm-hmm. in, at, the, at the very lowest end of the motor mm-hmm. system uh, would be things like the control of individual muscle units and so on. Um, no, but look, but if you, you, if you go to the midline structures in your brainstem, yeah. where you have the central gray, for instance, mm. where you have whole mm. behavioral patterns that, that are species-specific okay, and yes. coded so, in so, a local so way. There, there'd be sort of hardwired things down there. Sure, like, and there know, might be gaze, gaze uh, controls, uh, completely right, predefined so, particular formation, yeah. so, etc. So there'll be sort of aggressive aggression and all of that sort of... Uh, sure, but they're behaviors, yeah. Yeah. right? They're behavioral yeah. programs that yeah. relate to certain motivational systems. Yeah. So so you don't see them as part of then the habit. You really see the habit as as targeting, let's say, higher level behavioral uh, elements that yeah. you might have learned. I, I think it's it's possible 
it's it's perfectly possible for for those lower level um, behaviors. So if you if you think about Mars' idea, I, I'm I'm building everything on Mars, as it were, and what he claimed was that these higher level uh, representations can trigger the pre-learned representations in the cerebellum and cause them to execute a particular kind of behavior. Um, there's no reason, I think, why maybe the brainstem could could participate in that. Um, so, I mean, many years ago, the work of Leeton and Supple showed that there were, there were cerebellar inputs. There were, if you lesion the cerebellar vermis, you get sham rage, you know, um, it's possible that that's happening because of the impact that cerebellum has on on those lower level brainstem centers. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying uh, it, it's not necessarily in the in, in in the focus of your idea about how habits are are learned or expressed, but it, you might you uh, cannot yeah, exclude yeah. it. No, that's right. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of evidence showing that there's interactions between right, exactly. you know, brainstem centers right. and the cerebellum, of course. So the other thing that you mentioned, or that also becomes apparent, as you said earlier, in some sense you're saying, look, all this, the modeling of the cerebellum is like a footnote to Marin Albus. Yeah. Right? So so you really think that there has been not that much progress in our theoretical understanding or computational understanding of the cerebellum beyond what Marin Albus have, have identified. I, I think there's certainly been some progress, of mm -hmm. course. Um, you can't deny that. You know, there's, we've been, we've come on leaps and bounds since 1969. Um, what I would say is that the fundamental ideas about cerebellar plasticity uh, and the way that they work have not changed all that much. The idea that the cerebellum has as its most fundamental unit the Purkinje cell, and that the inputs into the Purkinje cell. Um, you know the parallel fiber and the climbing fiber inputs being you know the principal inputs into the Purkinje cell is still a dominant idea. Um, that's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't be exploring other forms of plasticity in the cerebellar cortex. There are lots of other cell types, um, and it's it's very clear that that you know there's been, there's experimental evidence to support mm -hmm. to support their involvement. Right. as well so um so here we are right so so you have this really very if you want ambitious and also um advanced scheme where you see really how prefrontal cortex works together with cerebellum to realize both let's say controlled processing and automated processing right so and in that sense i guess you also have had to sort of fight your battles and you know <laughs> accumulate your scars to to get that point, to get that point across. So, um, given your experience now in trying to understand the brain at the system level, what is um, Narendra's law that we should follow to understand the brain at this level? <laughs> There's no law as such, but uh, of course, you know. <laughs> come on. I think I think we just have to be faithful to the data. Um, I think the starting point. If the starting point is the anatomy, then I think you're on very sound foot footing. Mm -hmm. um, it it needs to be based on based on that sort of evidence, and 
the other thing is to build from what we have learnt in the motor system. Uh, the motor system is what we understand best. Um, so if, if we can take a set of principles that we can apply in the motor system and, uh, and it, find a way of extending those into the cognitive domain, I think, I think that's, that would be Great. a good way forward. Hmm. So look, um, Tony, Tony likes traveling and, and then he always has me pay it, so I don't like to spend money. Hmm. So we only have trips to, to within England in the, the coming five years. So five years from now, he's going to come to your, to your lab Absolutely. To, More to, to, to check whether a, a prediction you're going to make today was actually confirmed or rejected. So what's the, the most important hypothesis that you want to see tested, validated in this five-year uh, framework or perspective? <laughs> That's a cheeky question, and, and you're going to hold me to that, aren't you? <laughs> of course. You? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Why do you think we're recording this? <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, there are so many interesting questions. Um, I suppose one of them would be to test, to go on testing the idea that a conditioned stimulus is processed in the same way in um, conditions of instrumental learning and classical conditioning. We've often talked about the, the possibility that there is this universal cerebellar transform. And uh, it's an idea that people have been on about for a long time and for a good reason. Um, I think this is a good way of doing that. I think it's, it's, it's a good way of, of, of pinning down that problem and saying, well, look, you've got a conditioned stimulus. Is it being processed in the same way, regardless of whether it's higher level or lower level? Are the areas that are activated when you process that instrumental CS, are they, how are they talking to the cerebellar cortex? Um, or indeed, are they speaking, uh, sorry, to the, to the prefrontal cortex? Which parts of the prefrontal cortex are they talking to? You know? mm. We still don't have a handle on exactly what areas of prefrontal cortex are saying to the cerebellum. Um, and so I think I think it would be good to try and work out methods for for, for sorting out the communication mm. between the two. Great, Rolander um, Romani, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Well, that was fun. <laughs> you gave me certainly a good grilling there. <laughs> the CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems. <laughs> I quite enjoyed that. Project <laughs> funded by the European Seventh Research Framework well, Program. I hope you still consider it friendly. But oh, of course. Interviews, okay. recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening. I think this no, is the idea fun. of the podcast that we can go a bit behind what you would put on the slides, right? Yeah, and and absolutely. also, to, I think it's important for people who listen to this to understand, look, there's uncertainty in what we do. Yeah, right? There's, absolutely. There, we make assumptions and to get that a little bit more to the foreground is really, I think, what we want to, to achieve here. And if you want to also show a bit more the more human level decision making that we have to do when, yeah. you, when you do these things. Right? That's often missing from talks, isn't it? Yeah, um, exactly.
but no, it's really good fun. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Terrific. I enjoyed it. No, actually, we we were really. Um, I'm also very much trying to figure out this whole idea of how do we compile habits, you know? So, uh, indeed, how can the cerebellum contribute to that? Is, is yeah. quite relevant for what we are doing. So that's why I um, at least yeah, it's a question of getting. It's trying to trying to understand what is a motor habit and what is a cognitive habit, uh-huh. really, and trying to right exactly. And that's something that. Um, yeah, I think I could have answered that right. <laughs> a little more effectively, but yeah, it's a tough one. I, I no, but, it, but, you know. uh, but you have to admit, right? It's, it seems really odd to claim it loops back over M1. Yeah. You're screwed. You add lots of uncontrollable latency to this whole thing. Um, yeah. There are a big chunk of a big chunk of the timing is 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 taken up with um, with the decision related aspects mm-hmm. and that's what you speed up with that prefrontal component um, yeah but maybe maybe we give t- we give too much importance to M1 you know I think M1 is a pretty stupid structure but there's no way out of the system without going through M1 yeah but I see M1 how can really you reach the corticospinal tract no, without wait, 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 getting exactly M1? but you just dump your motor program in M1 you give it a very short time window to play it down into the cortical spinal tract and yeah. you close it up again that's it finish it's just the output station you know yes but how do you how do you get it in uh, via your premotor network uh premotor network being well, through pre-motor, red nucleus pre- and so no, on no, wait, wait, wait. In, in my model my my cerebellum does not need to talk to m1 it doesn't give a damn about m1 it just plays it out downstream immediately because it wants to be quick yeah yeah i think if you, also from an evolutionary perspective, that's the one thing that matters. Mm. This is what makes you survive. Be quick. Yes, yes. That's why you yes, want to do yes, this at yes, all. Yes, I understand. Right? Yeah, yeah. So for that, this, this, this is why you just want to play it straight down. I suppose the crux of the issue is how do you get information out of Cruise 1 and Cruise 2 mm-hmm. and into your premotor network? Mm-hmm. And I don't think there is a route except mm-hmm. through... I mean, what would it be? Well, look, cruise one, cruise two, they, they are talking to deep nucleus. You might have divergence. Yeah. It's, we cannot exclude that. This is the thing we have to actually, check. Actually, right. right? And okay. I would yeah. bet, certainly since it's brainstem, damn sure you have divergence. Yes. Right? So, so then, you, you then, you throw away, then you throw away modularity, right? Yeah, but, but I... I, I, I wasn't, well, maybe that's okay. I wasn't committed right. to modularity. That was your right. problem. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we still have conserved it at the cerebellum level. Mm. But outside of the cerebellum, I just allow things to diverge or yes. to, to be linked yes. together. You still, for me, just the key is, why don't you, why don't you allow lateral interaction cerebellum? Because you lose, you get latency. Mm. You just, mm. you say, if I go through that loop, I want to get out in a predictable way. There can be no f- screwing around. This is why it's it's important to figure out um, the intrinsic connectivities within the cerebellar nuclei then. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And the data's not there. Are you sure? In primates, it's not there. Mm-hmm. I should ask Björn Merker. He might know. We, he, he's a good friend, great expert on brainstem. Uh, we should look at red nucleus, for instance... Um, I remember discussing this with him a few weeks ago, but not so specifically for the mm. red nucleus. He didn't reject the idea completely, but I didn't ask for the references. I'll ask no. him. Yeah, I, I, I 
was a few years ago. I think I think this issue did bother me, and I I, mm-hmm. I looked and I looked. I couldn't find mm-hmm. the anatomical evidence, okay. um, and the simplest route out was through M one, uh, possibly because mm-hmm. we know about the connections. Sure, and and we don't know about the connections. Mm-hmm. Um, the intrinsic connectivity within the deep yeah, but, but to allow you see, that I, already, I think I did well because I have two options now. Hmm. Uh, I have plan B. Right? Plan B is um, the the prefrontal oriented cerebellar regions don't care about linking to the motor output. They just care about yeah. setting the right interval information for even the the amplitude time course of let's say a memory response prefrontal. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so they, don't, they don't give a damn about motor. No, right? I think that's more likely right. actually, uh, because you know the language is different. The mm. language that the prefrontal cortex speaks. When I say language, I mean, you know, the the uh, um, the neural activity, the, the neural activity, and what it's time locked to, and so on. It it doesn't give a damn mm-hmm. about about motor. Exactly. It just doesn't. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe it isn't bothered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would buy that. Because then, uh, what it could look like is that you just have this prefrontal cerebellar interaction. Cerebellum helps keep time in that system. You get your deliberate action plans. You play out over M one. Mm. Goes down over over the cortical spinal tract. But you have your collaterals into uh, a range of brain some areas. You have your efferents copy back to the pons. You have a lot of yes. source information. Yes. For the cerebellum now to suck in these regularities, mm, mm, mm. and then from then on, I would speculate, yeah. right? It would just play this out automa- automatically, mm. exploiting recurrent projections into the ponds that just allow it to load yes. multiple circuits. Yeah, uh, functionally, this would make sense to me. Then I really have optimized my latencies. Mm, this is what I mm. want. Yeah, okay? yeah. I think there's a lot of merit to that actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Just the anatomy is missing, but. Yeah. That's a detail. <laughs> <laughs> a forgettable detail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, given that people haven't looked, we it's a reasonable hypothesis yeah, to, to go and to, to, to check. So yeah. I should convince uh, some some red runner to uh, to do some tracer studies. Yeah, yeah. Or even even somebody who works on monkeys. Yeah, even better. Or humans. Or humans. Why <laughs> can't we do this? Isn't there a way to do this? Can't you look at brainstem areas? Paul, I'm going to have to go and move hotels. All right, so then we see you at 8.30 at the Silicon for dinner? Yeah. Possibly?